Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. With Benelin on News Talk. You're very welcome to Alive and Kicking, News Talk's health and wellness show. I'm Claire McKenna. And if you're listening to this being broadcast on December 25th, I hope you are having a lovely Christmas with however that looks for you and that you're reminding yourself. If you're catching up on the podcast or listening back, you are also very welcome. And in this episode... I wanted to take a look back at some of the interviews of 2022, which really stayed with me after we have pulled down the faders and stopped recording. Now, all of my interviews on this show make an impact. They truly do. I feel so lucky to have two to three guests in front of me every single week talking about their experience or their expertise in the area of health and wellness. I choose all my guests myself and have learned something from each and every one over the three years of presenting this show. And you, the listener, making contact with me by email or on social media, letting me know what has resonated with you, what didn't. I love to hear from you all and I'm so very grateful. I had some Alive and Kicking events this year and it was so lovely to meet some of you, to hear your own stories and how and where you listen to it, how you take on my health and wellness week rant every week. So thank you to you all and to all of my guests over the year. And when I sat down with my producer, Aidan McKelvey, who has also been a gem all year, to pick who would feature in this episode, we were in agreement immediately with these three that first came to mind. Coming up, you'll be hearing from Franciscan monk, Brother Richard, on his poem, Lockdown, which went viral and led to his book, Still Points. He spoke so beautifully about a life of service and how we all need to find moments in our life to be still and go within. And Human Collective is a sustainable clothing brand who promote equality. The symbol on their products support racial, LGBTQI plus and opportunity equality. And they donate partial proceeds to charity partners working in this area. And they also run workshops to raise awareness of social issues. I met with Paddy Smith and Connor Buckley to find out the story behind the brand. But first, Dr. Hazel Wallace is Irish but lives and works in the UK as a nutritionist and a doctor with the NHS, although she has moved more into running her food medic brand full time in recent months. With a massive social media following and author of two previous books, back in July, she released her third, The Female Factor, Making Women's Health Count and What It Means to You. And she joined me in studio to discuss why this book is part of a wider mission to bring women's health out of the shadows where it is under-researched, under and misunderstood. So talk to us a bit about this change in direction. I mean, of course you've evolved as a person since mm. 2012, not only with life experience, but also more qualifications, more studies and a doctor. But when did you become conscious of the male-centric medical model we have? I think it happened gradually over the last couple of years. I, you know, have started online with as the food medic 10 years ago and nutrition was my kind of primary focus then but as I left medical school and qualified as a doctor and was working with patients I noticed that there was this clear gap between how we treat men and women in the hospital and also when it comes to the guidelines we're using they're based on research that is largely based on male bodies male mice and male cells and simply like extrapolated to a woman with the assumption that we're just smaller versions of men, which is completely untrue because we have these fluctuating hormones, we can get pregnant, 
physiologically we're just very different we're built different and all of those things matter because it means like we'll respond to treatments differently we will present with symptoms differently and we may require you know different forms of care and so I just dipped my toe into the research and realized actually there's a huge gap here and I realized that women were being misdiagnosed underdiagnosed undertreated and felt like they weren't being heard so that was I I just decided to write this book because I felt like there was nothing out there like it. And as a woman myself, and a doctor to many women, women, I felt like I needed to get that information out there. And your direct message inbox has been flooded from time to time with messages from women who said in a medical situation, they just felt they weren't being listened to. Yeah, I think there's one line in the book that I have, and it's that it's almost as if women present with feelings and men present with symptoms. So we don't a lot of women feel like it's all in their head or that people will just assume it's their hormones and it's not really a real, you know, physical problem. And actually women are more likely to get a psychiatric diagnosis for a physical problem. So we're more likely to say it's anxiety when actually you're having a heart attack. Um, And heart disease is one of those things that is a really good example of this because heart disease is the biggest killer of men and women worldwide. But we assume it's a man's disease. And in the UK, for example, in the last 10 years, women were twice as likely to die from a heart attack. And it's not because women are coming into hospital and we're giving them poor care. It's because of both bias and biology. So when a woman experiences symptoms of a heart attack, she's less likely to think it's a heart attack because she's not aware that she could experience that. She's more likely to self-diagnose something else and more likely to self-medicate at home or put it off because she's got lots of other things to do. And then when she arrives at hospital, she's more likely to be misdiagnosed with something else. And that's down to us having biases as doctors that, it, you know, typically it's an older man who comes in with central crushing chest pain. But a woman might be experiencing a heart attack but come in and um, may tell us her symptoms are more like palpitations or anxiety or heartburn. But they're all red flags for a heart attack as well. And even the diagnostic tests that we're using, they may not be well suited for women. They may be more accurate just for men. And so at each stage of the symptom onset to leaving hospital, the stacks are basically against women, and which is why they have such poor outcomes. And why is the research men-centric? Is it any sort of defence that we do have fluctuating hormones, that if we're on a drug trial, for example, there is a chance we could get pregnant and there could be damage to the fetus? Is that enough of a reason to leave us out of studies altogether? It's a valid consideration, but I don't think it's an acceptable reason to exclude women. Um, So you're right in that women have been historically excluded because of the fluctuating hormones across the menstrual cycle, across the lifespan which in research terms is a nuisance because it's a bit of white noise. It can, you know, change the data um, and also the risk of pregnancy. So when it comes to drug trials, for example, ethics just wouldn't approve it. You know, there's ways of getting around those situations and, you know, women are, lots of women are on contraception and that's a safe way of testing things. But if we don't test, we'll never know. And in drug treatments, for example, there's a huge male bias and women are twice as likely to have an adverse reaction to drugs because of that. Because it's not just that we're smaller and and we're going to respond um, in a way because we're more sensitive. We've got smaller livers. 
our gut motility is uh, a lot slower, so we absorb the drug slower. We've gotten more body fat and drugs can stay within the fat in the body. So we excrete it slower. Our kidneys excrete it slower. So all of these reasons mean that the drug can typically hang around the body longer. And so um, we're, we might be more susceptible to the side effects or they may, might linger around longer. And we know this. We know this on a physiological level. I've learned at medical school. But the fact that we've just been like oh, well, it's just, you know, too much of too too much of a nuisance, really. So we'll just do it on men and we'll just test it on women once it's done. It's just not, I don't think it's something that we can accept anymore. But aside from the research and the drug trials, you're looking to also change the narrative of how we view women in society, because I think that's really important. You're right. Mm. The fact that a woman will turn up and say she's crushing chest pains, and they'll just assume it's anxiety and, and go more on an emotional sense. That really feeds into the narrative we have about women, that we are more emotional or perhaps we're really just really busy at home. And that just isn't factual anymore. No, I, it's it's so archaic and it's based in the like a very made up diagnosis of hysteria, which, you know, we say that women are hysterical. You'd never say a man is hysterical. And hysteria was this made up condition that was basically thought that it originated from the womb and in terms of the symptoms of that it was everything from um you know being a little bit tired being a bit irrational being manic um being sexually aroused or not aroused enough there was like it was just such random symptoms that these male doctors were imposing on women and i still think that mentality hangs around a bit you know if a woman's acting in a way that seems emotional. Oh, it must be our hormones. It must be she's going through the menopause. She's pregnant. It's the time of the month. And while our hormones do influence our mood, they're not the only voice in the crowd and they're not the loudest. And in matter of fact, like when it comes to PMS, for example, the women who are the most socially supported, so have a supportive relationship or supportive people around them, are the ones who are less likely to experience PMS. And that's the biggest predictor. And it's the same when it comes to our mental health. Our relationships are the biggest predictor and hormones are not because all women experience those hormonal fluctuations, but not all women will experience mood changes during those kind of vulnerable periods. Have you had any sort of fear or apprehension about putting your head above the parapet and beginning to be critical of the system within which you've studied and worked? Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting question. And I have, you know, um, I'm not an obsingyne doctor, which is a typical women's health doctor, uh, quote unquote. And with this book, it's not a women's health book in that way. I'm expanding the definition to women's health to include total body health. And so initially I was like, am I the right person to write this book? But there is no specialty for, for female health. There is no one doing that there's no one practicing that and so I thought well if it's not me then who so I just I felt very passionate I felt very frustrated and when I did start writing the book I had to almost rein myself back in because it was very activist and angry and I felt like I really needed to get the message out and I had to take a bit of a u-turn still present the facts but also make it very practical because I do think that research is changing. I do think the guidelines will change eventually and that we as doctors will need to include sex and gender differences 
in medical school training. But that will take years. And so I wanted this book to be very much a practical manual, manual so that women can start implementing this advice now. Um, and it's, the, I mean, the feedback's been amazing. And I think the fact that the overriding message is, oh, I can't, I'm so glad that someone is listening or I've been trying to tell my GP this for years or I thought it was all in my head. And that just really solidifies why I did write this book because it wasn't just me thinking, it was all all the other women who are following my page and who are coming to the page now. And I suppose it plays into the gender stereotyping narrative that we're told to be what it means to be a good girl. It's to rock in, don't put speak too loud, yeah. be quiet, please people, get on well. Um, whereas you don't talk the same way with a man who speaks up, you know, they're a hero, a maverick, a, you know, a change maker. But at the same time, I get what you're saying. Sometimes you need to soften the message to get it in. Sometimes when you're shouting, it's harder for people to hear it. Yeah, that's it. And I think it's really important to stand up for what you believe in and what you're really passionate about. But like I said, if this isn't going to practically change anyone's life, then there's no point me writing this book Um, because... I need to ensure that this is a conversation starter, but also something that can start that people can start implementing. And I mean, yeah, I I've had conversations with other doctors, and I feel like it's starting to trickle in. And I had a this a similar experience when I started talking about nutrition ten years ago as a medical student, because then nutrition wasn't really considered as an important part of health, or not as much. And now only in the last couple of years, is nutrition in the medical school curriculum. So I've, I feel like I've sort of been through it before. I'm not afraid to to kind of speak my mind about things that I'm, I feel passionate about. You break the book into four sections. How did you choose what was that, that was going to be? Yeah, um, again, it started as almost like a top-to-toe manual and I was like, this is becoming a textbook because I wanted me, I wanted to understand every single part of the body and how it differentiated between a man and a woman. So I was like really diving deep into this. And I was like, this is not, this is not useful for a woman as an everyday manual. So I broke it into kind of the main pillars of health or lifestyle that we all kind of operate in. And that's nutrition, movement, sleep and mood. Um, And I also have some recipes at the back. But nutrition is first and foremost, my main passion and the thing that I've I've got a master's in, it. I've worked as a nutrition doctor and I'm really passionate about that, but also movement, sleep and the mood component really fascinated me because I, I think that really plays into the whole women are hysterical and we experience, you know, worse mental health. And I found that really interesting because we do experience different mental health conditions. You know, women are twice as likely to experience anxiety or depression. But why? Like, I wanted to know why. And it's not just down to our hormones or our biology. It's also our, our how we're brought up, our cultural and social norms. You know, how we respond to stress is different. And I think what we mentioned earlier and that women are are told to like, you know, be very quiet and, and not like aggressive and, you know, just put up with it and and not cry in public and that almost feeds into the fact that we tend to experience these internalizing disorders so it's internalizing because 
we ruminate on it we deal with it ourselves we're not like externally like being aggressive whereas men will often act out when they're experiencing mental health problems they'll often do externalizing behaviors like drinking alcohol drinking drugs um a lot of men will kill themselves by suicide because of mental health problems whereas women won't and that's devastating for both sexes but that's why we need to understand why we're so different um so yeah there's four pillars of the book and i talk a little bit about how they affect women differently and how to implement that across the lifespan so a lot of women will say I don't think this book is useful for me because I've gone through the menopause. It absolutely is. Or my daughter's only a teenager. It basically takes you from puberty past the menopause. And you're right, there's gender stereotypes we need to break down in both because I, I assume when you're saying you want to change the narrative, there's a few things you want to change. But one of them is that we don't want one to be seen as strong and one to be seen as, as less than. Yeah, that's it. And I think... I mean, when I brought out a book on female health specifically, I knew there would be some conversation about men's health. And often that's coming from a man that men's health is important too. And I, and that's, and yes, that's true. But the point of the book is that most of the research we have is based on men's health. And so we've got that covered. But if we're just assuming that we should treat men and women the same or males and females the same, then we're doing both sexes and all genders a disservice because we are all different and we need to understand those differences for the better health of everyone. And there is a kind of a less than mentality, isn't it? Like a man has more muscle, a a woman has more body fat. This is seen as a kind of a negative connotation. A man will have more upper body strength, a woman will have less. A man will be more steady in his mood, whereas a woman will have fluctuating hormones. We do kind of pit them against each other and see the man as better in some ways. It's time to end that conversation. Yeah, it really is. I think, you know, there are key physiological differences and anatomically we're different. We are a smaller build, but it doesn't make us inferior. And I think, you know, physically that's something that can be quite obvious. But one of the age-old things that, you know, has now been absolutely disproven is that men are more intelligent than women. And that was because um, they're that men have a heavier brain, but that is due to body size. So it correlates with body size. It's nothing to do with intelligence. But years and years ago, this was written into research and it took so long to disprove. But now we know, like we've absolutely debunked that. And yet still there's this assumption that men are better suited for like the sciences or the, the the higher up um, kind of positions and jobs, but women are just as capable. Yeah, and likewise, we've debunked that our brains operate differently, that men can't be can't. emotional or caregiving or nurturing, which yes. just isn't true. It's not true. But the more we tell that narrative, the less likely a man is to feel like he can really lean into that side of himself and he may feel like he can't talk about his feelings and then that will feed into poor mental health. So we need to really unravel all of those kind of thoughts we have about what makes a man, what makes a woman. So as you said, you've put this book in the hands of of the people that felt they weren't being listened to. And that was your number one aim to empower women with information about their own health. But where else do you see this mission going? Will you begin 
lobbying the the educators, the policy makers? Is that part of what you want to do with this message? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've even, I really thought about how big it would get when I published the book. And the response has been really great. But what I would love to see is more conversation, not just within the kind of my community or the general population, but feeding into education, feeding into kind of healthcare and policy and things like that. And I mean, in the UK, late last year, they launched the Women's Health Strategy, which was basically a call for evidence because they're acknowledging this huge gap. And they hired their first women's health ambassador, which is a minister to look after all of this. So I feel that conversations are happening slowly, but you do, we do need to have more people behind it. And I do feel like there needs to be more recognition between within that medical community that this is a really important thing. And actually it's leading to very poor outcomes in female health. Well, it's a a fantastic book. Congratulations on it because it kind of treads the line between being a, an educative text, but also being really easy to, to understand. And it would look lovely on any coffee table and it's all the recipes in the back. And that's not to make it fluffy for women. I'm not trying to feed into that narrative, yeah. but I think that's important. It could be one book that would be read by a particular person, but this is a real book for everybody. I would highly recommend it for any woman in your life. The book is called The Female Factor, Making Women's Health Count and What It Means for You. Dr. Hazel Wallace, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Human Collective is a sustainable clothing brand who promote equality. The symbol on their products support racial, LGBTQI+, and opportunity equality, and they donate partial proceeds to charity partners working in this area. They also run workshops to raise awareness of social issues. I met with Paddy Smith and Connor Buckley to find out the story behind the brand. Can I start with you, Connor? When did the idea first come about? Like, what was the moment that this started? I would say if I was to pick a moment, it was probably the 25th of May 2019 when George Floyd passed away. I think that really resonated with me. Um, I think that resonated with obviously a lot of black people, people all over the world. As the first time I felt that I think the whole world came together to really support black people. Um, the Probably the second moment would have been um, I had a baby boy on the 27th of March and what happened there was We'd been trying for a couple of years, and we'd been uh, we hadn't been very successful. We hadn't been very fortunate. And when he came along, we were so happy. Lockdown happened, um, so he was born on the twenty seventh of March. Lockdown happened around the seventeenth of March, and it was this moment where my where I just stopped. Uh, my email stopped. I was working uh, for a hospitality company, and it was it was insanely busy, and it stopped. And I really thought about um, the little person that was in our lives now and how. Uh, I wanted to spend more time with him. And then also, I'm proud of my mum I was and of what she had achieved. She was a campaigner and activist. Her name was Christine Buckley. And she went on to, to great things in the sense of, um, she set up a, a centre for victims of institutional abuse. She exposed all of the abuses in the church. And I felt that I wanted him to be as proud of me as I was of her and as of my dad because my dad's amazing as well. My mum gets a, a lot of the, the credit and she deserves it but my dad's amazing too and I, I felt that I wanted her to be wanted this man to be as proud of me. So I really wanted to do something with a real purpose and I wanted to give something back and that's why it was really important for us to link in to support ch- charities. It was important for us to do something where we felt like we could help society in a sense and, and now I think those two moments came together. 
Yeah, this gives me chills. I'm obsessed with this. This is change maker territory, which really is a, a big fascination of mine. How we see something, we feel something, but who are the people that take it that step on? Because we often all feel motivated by something and it's really hard to know where to channel that. So when did you decide it was going to be a leisure brand, that that was going to be where this message was going to come through? Yeah, good question, Claire. Originally, it was all about spreading the message. So I did a little bit of work on Instagram. I don't really speak on Instagram. I don't I don't speak on Instagram for Human Collective or on my personal one, but I talked a little bit about my own experiences and I got a really good response from it. Um, and then I was started doing a bit of inv- interest investigation work. So I spoke to um, lots of different people in the community, from the LGBT community, from the black community. And I guess from all these immersive ideas, I felt like there had to be something that we could do to, I guess... Where you know, do you know the expression "wear your heart in your sleeve"? Wear what you believe. So, I saw a, an educator called Jane Elliott in America. She's an amazing lady. She's probably about eighty-five, eighty-six now. Uh, she started doing uh, talking about inequality back when Martin Luther King had passed away. She's a white lady, and she she had this jumper on that said, "There's only one race, the human race," and I felt like. That was such a simple message, but it hadn't really been said enough. She talked about how race was a social construct, how it had basically been set up in 1500 to justify slavery. It was a bit like Bitcoin in a sense, in order to, uh, it was it was manufactured, uh, sorry, racism was manufactured. And I felt that, so she had this jumper on that said that, but it was very loud. And I said, well, no one's going to wear something that's very loud. So I wanted to do something that was quite subtle and that everyone would feel comfortable. And that's why on our jumpers, we have a very subtle equal sign. And it's a reminder for people about equality, but it's also a reminder that we're all human. And it was our first; it's our first step. So we've 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 a, we've a strategy behind that, and it's this is our first step in a subtle message being on your clothing. And we wanted to see what the public supported at the start. So we had no idea. We launched in November eight, and we wanted to see what the public supported. And we've been amazed by as much as we looked at the data that every single age group has supported us and has bought the jumpers. And that's amazing to see that people are really standing by what they believe and wearing this um, this the equal sign. So we have it on hats, we have it on jumpers, we're bringing out t-shirts. We've been very fortunate that businesses like Brown Thomas are looking to bring us into their stores. And and I guess aligning ourselves with Brown Thomas, we've been very lucky with some of the, and, and Paddy's done amazing work on this. Some key people in Ireland have talked about it. So we've got very lucky to have people like Amy Huberman, Laura Whitmore, Brezzy, all wearing our jumpers and talking about the brand and lots of other people as well. Um, yeah, because people talk about fashion being frivolous, but actually it's a really powerful vehicle for you to spread a message. And I think it's it's worth pointing out that three euro of every jumper sold goes to the three charity partners, Sports Against Racism Ireland, LGBT Ireland and the Irish Youth Foundation to support their work in tackling inequality. So not only are you spreading the message, but you're also giving back. Paddy, when did you come to be involved? I, Connor just called me up. I had interviewed for Connor years back. He never gave me the job. <laughs> and then he came crawling <laughs> back. But yeah. I obviously stuck in his mind. Um, and he actually, <laughs> I looked at my phone. We were looking for a corporate salesperson. I looked, type corporate sales. Wait, if I look for a marketing person, I type marketing. Because I've interviewed so many people over the last 15 years. And Paddy was there. Paddy corporate sales. And I always leave a note. And I went hard grafter because he told me some of the hard sales jobs he'd done. And we were getting lots of corporates 
asking for the jumper and lots of corporates asking us to do talks. I went, wow, Paddy, Paddy was, remember he was telling me he had some tough sales jobs in the past and I wanted people who have got a good work ethic. So I said, I'll give him a call. But I know Paddy's right to interrupt you. Yeah. No, but I kind of like that. He does. <laughs> loves to talk, kind of does. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I love him. He likes passion in you, doesn't he? When you, li- yes. when you, when you listen to him, you're just, that's why like, I'm so proud to be part of this journey with him. And like, he definitely has a leadership passion and qual- uh, quality about him, which is amazing. But yeah, he rang me up and, and told me about the job. And I just was really excited about the ethos and the message behind it. And also, obviously, Claire, me speaking with you, like, you know, we know each other quite a while. Like, you know, my whole thing is like changing how people see minority groups, especially because I'm disabled myself. And I just thought, you know what? He's allowing me to head a, a, a department and I'm a minority group in myself. And like, what's that going to do for everybody in my platform to see, to see that someone with a disability can head an amazing fashion brand that has a, like a stunning message behind it. Um, and I just really got excited by it. And I think one of my biggest things is if I ever get excited by something, like go for it. Even if I don't really know what I'm doing, I'll figure it out. Yeah, I love that. And this has been a message of yours for a long time. Why is somebody with a disability only pictured on billboards yes. to fundraise? Yeah. Why aren't they in beauty brands? Why aren't they in yes. festival ads? Why aren't they in fashion campaigns? And you have been smashing that. You've appeared in all three of those at this point, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, um, I don't know how, but somehow I've done it. Um, but yeah, it's been great. I just, I hate the concept that we're worthy and we're victims and like, you know, we need help from everybody. Um, I think that like we are in everyday life. We have dreams just like you. Um, you know, we want to go out and party just like you. You know, we want to wear clothes and look great just like all of you. So I think that is a really like driving force to me. And it's a driving force of like, I just listened to Connor speak, like his passion and his like, just the reason why he wants to do this gets you excited. And I think that's an amazing person to have in your corner. And I just, I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah. And I think with everything that's going on in the world at the minute, there are big shifts that are positive, but there are also big blocks that are tough to take on, be it the war, be it the climate crisis. But we don't want to be paralysed to inaction. We have to believe that there are things within our control and that we can make a difference. There's no point in doing absolutely nothing. So what are the plans? Where is this going to go? Because I know you are also involved in workshops and spreading the message in other ways. Yeah, so we've been asked by a number of key companies. We've done a number of talks for, for Google, PayPal. Uh, Paddy's done a great talk. He was a, he was an MC for Google's Festival of Diversity. So a lot of key clients have, have who I worked with in the past, but also new clients have, have um, asked us to either pr- provide products for them, um, which is great, or to do talks. And we've got a great lady called Momobo Goro, who's um, a social psychologist, and she's studying a PhD in discrimination and, and prejudice then the University of Limerick. And, and she's partnering with us in those talks. She's part of the team. And she's a really impressive lady. Every time you're around her, you just learn so much. Because we're learning as well. We're all learning. So the last thing we want to do Claire has come on and be very righteous and preachy because we're all in the same journey together. Um, some of us are a little bit further ahead than others. But um, She's I, really good at bringing facts. She brings facts to the table. Yeah. You know? And uh, me and Connor need that sometimes because we just love talking about our <laughs> own experiences. But she really has... Yeah, she's got that academic you know, approach. Yeah. Academic, and I even on. think in the health and wellness discussion here, if there's science behind it yeah. or statistics behind yeah. it, people are like, okay, yeah. I'm on board. So well, it is really important. Momobo's so impressive. Like she sent me this morning... 
reasons why a diverse workforce is actually more productive reasons why diverse yeah. work, diverse workforce is more beneficial to a company and she's got all the factual information behind that so she brings that academic approach which is which is great because i think patty's got a, a, a an amazing story and i think disability isn't probably spoken about enough i think there's been a lot of support for the black community i think there's been a lot of support for the girls can be more um, same for the LGBT community, there always can be more, and for gender equality as well. But I don't think people really talk about disability as much. Um, and that's why I think it's, it's as Paddy said, it's great to have Paddy as a figurehead of the company. So Because we really believe, and there's also scientific uh, evidence that if you can see it, you can believe it. So if you can mm. see people um, representing you as a person, whether you're a child, then you feel like you can achieve that when you're older. So th- that's, I guess, what we'd love to see. We'd love to see more people being represented. I guess from a brand point of view, we would love to see more, obviously, people wearing the jumper and feeling comfortable about it. I think we've what we've found is, um, so when, when Paddy first came on board, I didn't realise he was part of the LGBT community. And when when you have... I, mean, I don't know how he didn't. <laughs> 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 and, and and what was great about that we also have we have obviously two other members part of the community is that when you've got a diverse group of people sitting around a table everyone has their own insight that they can provide and it really is amazing because everyone then learns and I don't again I don't want to sound so philosophical but it really does improve discussions about branding it improves discussions about how we approach things and it really grounds our values because if you have those core people in your team and we're really what we what I didn't realize, Claire, as we set this up, is how many good people would be attracted to the business because of what we're doing. So, people like Michael Darren McCauley, people will probably know him for winning eight All Irelands for Dublin. But actually, he does so much great work with the inner city community, and he's like spearheading a, a charity campaign we're doing for Ukraine at the moment. And when you have those good people in the business, it just makes everyone in the business better people. Yeah. So that's what I didn't realize. I probably didn't realize how much support we would get as well. We've been really fortunate. People have been incredibly kind to us, not just our customers, but in terms of supporting us in terms of like a landlord and giving us free furniture. Um, so that that kindness has really helped us as well. And then obviously corporates have helped us. Yeah, so it's coming from the heart and it's yeah. opening up other hearts because I know we said the stats are important, but we need to get out of our heads and into our hearts but a bit more. I want to say, Claire, we don't want it to be a charity jumper. Yeah, you know I mean? we want it to be a jumper that you would wear day to day, and like you'd be proud to wear it rather than just like a charity jumper that you'd wear once. Do you know what I mean? So although, like that is really hard, and that's a line we're trying to figure out. Yeah, it's a great I mean? point, Paddy. It's a really great point. We Paddy and I did a a call with a client the other day, and they talked about putting their logo on on the on a pride T shirt for June, and we said we've no problem with that if that's what you'd like to do. This pride, it can't be just for June. It has to be 365 days a year. April is Diversity and Inclusion Month, but it can't be just for April. It has to be for 365 days yeah, a year. Yeah, no, it's so true. And, you know, I hear Emma Dabry talks an awful lot about we need to go from allyship <sighs> to true coalition because yeah, we need to be right. looking. It's like you said, Paddy, yeah. you don't want to be part of this group that's pitied and every yeah. now and then we just give money to. Like that's, not it. that's not inclusion. I mean? yeah. That's not seeing yeah. ourselves as one human collective, which I think is a perfect way for us to end. If people want to find out more, go to wearehumancollective.com. Connor Buckley and Paddy Smith, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much, Claire. Thanks, Claire. Brother Richard Hendrick is a Franciscan monk living and working in Dublin. He shares his knowledge of meditation with others as well as community support. His poem Lockdown went viral during the pandemic, shared by millions, including several well-known faces, and it's been translated into many languages. 
This led to a book called Still Points, A Guide to Living the Mindful and Meditative Way. He joined me in studio back in September and was so open to being asked about his life of service, but also sharing his wisdom around the power of going within and how we can all find a way in this distracted, busy world. It's a conversation I know I'll never forget. Hello there. How are you? Hi, it's good to be with you today. I've been telling you that I have been immersed in the book over the last two to three weeks. I've really enjoyed the journey that it has brought me on. How have you found the journey of it? Because I know you never really intended for your poem to go viral. Perhaps you never had the intention of writing a book and yet all this has happened. How have you been finding that? Yeah, it's been quite the journey uh, from the moment that the poem went viral. I mean, I'd been using social media for gosh, maybe about 10, 12 years before then, just as a way of uh, inviting people into deeper moments of reflection, you know, using uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all of those things. At that time, I was working mostly with um, colleges and secondary schools. So if you wanted to create little oases of meditative moments for them, that's where they lived. That's where they were. So hence, I was, was kind of putting the writings out on that. And some of them were popular. Some of them went around a bit and that was fine, but nothing prepared me for for lockdown. Um, It was a poem that arrived out of my own meditation on trying to find the good, even in the midst of the the chaos and the tragedy of that that sort of opening act of the the pandemic worldwide. Um, I put the poem up, I went to bed and I woke up to a different, different world in the sense that that the phone had nearly exploded and there were there were thousands and thousands of, of uh, likes and retweets and reposts and all of that kind of stuff. And um, to some extent, it's still out there. It's still journeying. Um, and it was after that then that um, a couple of publishers got in touch and said, look, you know, you seem to have um, uh, at least touched the zeitgeist with this poem. We'd like to see your other writings. And, and I actually held off for about a year uh, in terms of doing anything because for us as as monastics, as as friars, um, it, it's it's not about us as individuals. It's not about the ego. It's not about wanting to be famous. It's not about wanting to do anything other than uh, ask the question, well, do my words improve on silence and do they help people deepen their own inner awareness? And after about a year of praying with it and getting advice on it and meditating on it myself, I decided I would, I would um, kind of release something into the wild. And that's been the journey so far. And before we get into the book itself, can I ask about your story and what led you to a life of service? Sure. Um, Well, I suppose at this stage, it's 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 kind of a potted story. But at about 15, 16, I was heading towards leaving CERT at that stage. Um, I was uh, very interested in the sciences, particularly the natural sciences. I was my plan as such was to to study biology and then later to specialize in zoology. Um, and I was also, though, asking the kind of questions about meaning. You know, what what's it all about, really? Um, what What is a human life? What's the goal of the life? Um, and they might sound very deep and big questions for a 15-year-old to be asking, but I'd always been someone who'd read very widely, was very interested in thoughts and in, in what people thought in the ways of kind of faith and spirituality, um, belonged to your ordinary Dublin middle-class 1980s Catholic home, um, you know, Mass and the sacraments were part of life, but it wasn't an overly devotional experience. It was just the norm. Um, And so in the midst of all of that, somebody somewhere, and to this day I cannot remember who, gave me a book on the life of St. Francis of Assisi. And it was like something just clicked 
in that moment. Um, reading his life, uh, most people, most of your listeners would know him kind of as the nature saint, you know, someone who is very associated with the animals and with, with plants and with birds. And in fact, he's the patron saint of ecology um, and has been used by the current Pope uh, as a way of sort of uh, inviting people to uh, better care of our of our common home, um, a kind of an awareness of, of the, the various kind of crises that the world is under. And, and sort of looking at the Franciscan model as a way of restoring that or healing that. But at the time, for me, he spoke primarily around um, the idea of living a life of meaning, a life of service, but also a life of joy, uh, that it was possible to live a deep contemplative life and for that not to be the kind of serious, sour-faced uh, spirituality that sometimes we can all be confronted with, but instead uh, a life of service that actually resulted in joy. So I wanted to know more about him. Um, no Google, no internet in those far off distant days. And uh, I went to the library and I kind of read more and researched more and took out the phone book and found that there were actually these creatures called Franciscans still living in the world and that there were some in Dublin. So I got in touch with the Capuchin Friary. The Capuchins are a branch of the Franciscans. Um, I got in touch with the Friary in Church Street in Dublin 7 and began my journey from there. And when you put it that way about a life of joy and meaning, it seems ridiculous to throw in the stereotypes of what you may have sacrificed. But sure. do you ever feel that, particularly for a young teenager to think about sure. ending social life and, you know, all all the other trappings of, of life? Was that sure. something you had to, to grapple with or were you just well, really pulled course, in that direction? Of course, and, and you grapple with it. Daily, you know, I, I think there, there is no human life without sacrifice. There's no human life whereby if you make the choice to go left, you've given up the choice to go right, you know. And, and so one of the things that, that is part of the training, part of the formation uh, within our way of life is really taking time to look at um, what you are giving up, what you are choosing and, and what, um, what various kind of uh, strategies and ways of living uh, will allow you to to enrich even those areas of life that that you might be um, seen as, as as giving up. So, okay, we don't live family, but we do live community and brotherhood. You know, we don't live um, maybe the kind of social life that most people live, but we are we are very social. And I mean, I have plenty of friends and 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 family and connections that that certainly connect to us in that way. And and again, the other thing is we don't regard our way of life as better than any other way of life. It's just one particular way of life. It's not saying that the married person or the single person isn't going to find, you know, profound meaning or service in their way of life. So let's talk about still points then. Firstly, can we talk about stillness and and what the definition of that is? Sure, sure. Well, I think for most people, it's a word that frightens them. Uh, stillness, because we live in such an active world and we're, we're so reactive and we're receiving so much um, input and stimuli all of the time that, that when you say to somebody, you know, quietness, stillness, solitude, it terrifies most people. Um, uh, you know, how many people go off into the woods for their quiet time or go off, you know, on a holiday going to have quiet time and the phone is still in the hand and, the, you know, the, all of the, the input is still, is still being, being received. What we mean by stillness is simply receiving the moment as it is. That's all. Accepting the moment as it is. Uh, And so when you enter into that, the first thing you notice is that there is a certain amount of stimuli in every moment. I'm sitting here. I can feel my feet on the floor. I can feel my back on the chair. I'm speaking to you. I'm taking in the various sensory experiences that are there. 
But if I really want to be aware, if I want to touch stillness, then that's all I need to be aware of. I don't need to be thinking about what I'm doing afterwards. I certainly don't need to be thinking about what I was doing a few minutes ago. Um, If you want to receive the best of me and if I want to give the best of you in this moment, then I enter into an inner stillness that allows this present moment to open up in all its possibility. And that's all that stillness is, touching the present moment with awareness. And what about the distractions that you touched on there? I mean, they're in your life too. People will be fascinated to hear that you're on social media. That's how the whole poem started. So online news, WhatsApp groups, you have all of that too. It's not like you live in a monastic bubble. No, no. But I think think one of the things we have to do is to look at our choices. Are, Are we subject to all of these things or are we using them, you know? Um, And for a lot of people, if they stand back and take a little moment to think, they discover that for a lot of the time they're actually, you know, the subject in in that experience, that relationship with it. You know, we we wake in the morning, the very first thing we do is reach for content. We reach for the phone. We reach for, for, you know, what's happened? What have we missed? What has been going on? You know, Um, and sometimes we're missing what's actually there in front of us. We're missing the joy of the cup of coffee or we're missing the gentleness of waking up or we're missing even worse, the presence of the people who are around us and who actually make up our family or our partnership or our marriage or whatever it might be. And so our life becomes a series of mismeetings. You know, we're always in the past, we're always in the future or always somewhere else. So where the distractions are, are, are concerned... It's not that we're trying to get rid of them all because you can't. You can wall yourself up in a a room all by yourself with no stimuli and your brain will do enough all by itself to distract you. What we're saying is that the distractions, when they are considered from a place of peace, from a place of stillness, we can then begin to actively choose what are the distractions that, that are actually calling us to a deeper way or a deeper being. So if my partner or my child is in need of me, that's not actually a distraction. That's a call to a deeper way of living. But is the phone with the multitudinous WhatsApp groups or the, the, um, the, the bombardment of Twitter notifications, is that actually deepening me? Or is it, is it just distracting me and, and keeping me out of the moment, out of my own life? So there's an element of choice and discernment that stillness allows that otherwise we're just living kind of reactively towards. And it has to be something that you prioritise and set time for, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you, you do speak in the book a lot about meeting yourself where you're at, that there is no judgment, there is no expectation, because I think that's something yeah. people get overwhelmed at the thought that they <laughs> have to sit on a cushion for two hours Absolutely. and see what happens. Shave the head and climb the mountain. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the most important thing is for people to begin from where they simply are at. So whatever you're doing right now, you know, if you're listening to this, just listen. If you're having the cup of coffee, just have the cup of coffee. And it's not that you, you, you have to be, live like that all the way, all the time. The idea is, and that's why we called it still points, to, to place points in your day, whether it's one or two or five or ten or however many you need, but points that allow you to recover the awareness of your inner self so that you're actually touching that inner reality day by day, moment by moment, and growing from it, learning from it, living from it, rather than living from all of the suppositions of others, all of the prejudices of others, all of the, the opinions of others. Absolutely listen to them, be aware of them. But to really ask yourself, you know, most people go through the whole day without actually asking the question, how am I? And it's, it's the most profound question of all. How am I in this moment? It's a very simple thing. 
Because once we actually are aware of that, then what we'll find is even anxiety levels begin to go down because a lot of that anxiety is generated by the fact that we're, we're missing ourselves and we're missing others. Uh, if I ask myself, how am I? If I'm aware of how I'm breathing, aware of how I'm sitting, aware of how I'm uh, present to you in this circumstance or to anyone else, then there's a kind of a reset takes place in that moment. And it's the possibility then of actually being fully present and moving on. And it's not that that's going to be the way all the time. Uh, what's important is to begin, as I said, with, with placing a few points in your day. And that's where the phone can be a great help. Put the reminders on the phone, you know, the reminder to breathe, the reminder to, to be present, the reminder to, to take the walk and, and occasionally take the walk without the podcast or without the earphones in, just to take it and to see what's your neighbourhood like? What's your, what, what are the trees like? What are the seasons like? One of the questions we used to ask young people when we'd, we'd uh, be with them was to say to them, you know, what's the moon doing at the moment? And it was fascinating to discover how many of them had no idea that the moon changes, that there are phases of the moon, that there are, you know, that there are seasons. What's in the sky at the moment? What's the weather like? What are the trees doing at the moment? Um, and it's good for us to look up occasionally from our screens and just to take in what's actually going on. And if we're doing that in a few times a day, those little points become, it's like join the dots. They become, they become points of connection and slowly the spaces between them become filled with awareness as well. I did read an interview you gave to one of the Sunday papers oh, about yeah. the book and you were talking about a, a lady who had said to you, what am I supposed to do with all this awareness? You know, yeah. I used to just be somebody, she had a, was it a, an illness or chronic pain? And she said, now all I am is aware of the chronic yeah, pain. Yeah, it was, yeah, her, her, her words and it, they were very proud, profound words were, were um, you know, uh, I came to the, to the meditation course to get away from my brokenness. And now I am simply aware that I am broken. And that's actually a really important point. And it sounds awful, you know, people, they'd want to run from that. But actually, the important thing is that she had discovered that there was the brokenness, the condition, the experience she was going through. But there was also the I, and I don't mean the organ of sight, I mean the I, the, the, the personal I, that was separate from the experience. And when that happens, it is a profound shift for any human being to discover that there is an individual, there is a consciousness, there is, in our tradition, we'd call it the soul, but whatever you want to call it, there is a, a personal intelligence and awareness that is separate from the external stimuli I am receiving, whether that's even stimuli from within my own body in the case of illness. And that means then that I become slightly more detached from those from those experiences, those stimuli, and I begin to be able to distill wisdom and growth and healing and presence uh, for, from that. So the older languages are much better at this. Unfortunately, in English, we say things like, I am happy, I am angry, I am sad. And we're defining our being by the emotion. Whereas if you go to something like Irish, it says, which means sadness is on me at the moment. Happiness is on me at the moment. And the understanding is there is a landscape over which the weather of emotions flows, but the landscape remains. In the old Zen tradition, they used to say, you know, be like the mountain, you know, sit with, with your rooted properly, with the understanding that the emotional life and the fluidity of life is, is simply the weather coming and going. In the Christian tradition, they, they use the image of um, what they call the logismoi, uh, which are you know, your thoughts are like a cloud of mosquitoes around you. If you give attention to them, you'll feel the biting and you'll get distracted. But if you sit still long enough, eventually they lose their energy and they disappear. So I think what, what's really important for people to begin to recognize is that inner presence, that inner self 
that's actually separate to the stimuli that are out there, receives them. It's not that we want you to be detached and floating above them, but receive them and then also ask of yourself then, what are they teaching me in that moment? Yeah, there's a power to step away from the overwhelm and the consumed absolutely to be the observer and the learner as you say and the book is set in seasons Mm. why did you go with with that idea well it it comes from again an older much older idea which is the almanac you know the almanac was the book that hung on the gardener's wall and that told you what to to look out for in each season and what to do in each season so as to make the most of it. And this is a meditative almanac. It moves through the four seasons. um, And and some people have been astounded that we begin with winter and we end with winter um, because one of the things we wanted to avoid it was that idea of, you know, the self-help book that says on the 1st of January, you're your new perfect self because that just simply isn't true. Or at least it's not true by the 3rd of January for most people. Um, So the seasonality of it is the idea that we're actually called to live in communion with the natural world and its rhythms. So there will be forms of meditative consciousness and 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 tasks and and ways of being um, that are present in the summer months that maybe aren't aren't as well received in the winter months and vice versa. Um, a lot of the great meditative traditions, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., uh, always set the winter months aside for deeper practice, for deeper resting, deeper stillness, because that's what nature is doing in those months as well, you know. And and uh, unfortunately, we've, we've sort of in the West arrived at, at a place where we kind of say summer is good and winter is bad. And that characterization then can even um, begin to affect our own emotional life and our emotional stability within those seasons. So I wanted to show the richness of the seasons. I wanted people to actually feel um, in communion with, you know, our brothers and sisters, as St. Francis would say, the sky, the sun, the moon, the birds, the trees, the animals, etc. Because they also are teachers. They show us how to be mindful. Nothing is more mindful than an animal. It's, it's always in the present moment, you know. Um, And so when we meditate on them or are present with them, we begin to be drawn into this deeper, more natural, more kind of original consciousness that that is present. The second thing we did with it as well was we also um, structured it so that the major feasts of the Christian year um, are are received. Because a lot of people have lost touch with with those um, parts of our culture, parts of our history. So things like Halloween, for example, had a very, very deep um, meaning for the people that lived it. It wasn't just about the trick-or-treat or the masks or the or the, the bonfires. There was a meaning behind all of those things. And if we begin to touch that again with, with the, um, the light of awareness, with the light of inner awareness, those feasts and moments and times can actually enrich us and give us a much more um, paced following of the year. Particularly here in Ireland, so many people have begun to move away from organised religion. But mm. do you think it's perhaps to someone's detriment to remove all moments of spirituality along with that, for whatever sure. reason brought them to that decision. Sure. Well, I'd say, you know, we, we have been through a very tumultuous and tragic history over the last number of years, um, the last decade, really. Um, and a lot of that has had to do with our, our way of being spiritual and our way of being religious. But I think it's important that when we look at the overall tradition Uh, the nearly 2,000 years worth of Christianity, which was built out of and grew out of a 4,000-year-old Jewish tradition as well, there is inevitably wisdom in how people have lived um, the search for meaning in that particular way, just as there's wisdom in the other traditions as well. And I think what's important for people is is to recognise that, you know, maybe don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
sit with the practices themselves, sit with the teachings of the holy ones, the the the, the saints, the, the the mystics, sit with the, the ability of spirituality and ritual to connect us back to ourselves and to the natural year. Uh, and and then begin to decide um, how you want to to live or to move. I mean, this this book is not meant to convert anybody. It's meant to invite people to deepen how they are living already. And if it does that, I'm happy. Well, it certainly did that when I read it. So thank you for your words. You do have a beautiful way with them. It's filled with your with your poetry, um, and I really enjoyed the way you write and the message that you shared in the book and here today. The book is called Still Points. Brother Richard, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. So that's it for the best of Alive and Kicking and for 2022. My sincere thanks to you all for listening. I truly love this community we are building. There is no judgment or preaching around health and wellness. I hope this is just a place to pick something up if you want, but ultimately meeting you wherever you are at. My thanks to my producer, Aidan McKelvey, who is heading away travelling for a year with his partner, Mona. I wish them the very best on their exciting adventure. I will miss his calm, steady hand and his funky T-shirts. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna, Sunday morning at 8. With Benelin. On News Talk.